Well, good morning, Faith Covenant Church. My name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we are going to be doing Q&A this morning, so if you have a question, you can text that question into the number you will see on the screen right there. If you have a question you want to write down, you can write it down and put it on the Ask Pastor Brad card, which will be right in front of you in your seat pocket. And if you can't find that, then write it on something else, and we'll pass them forward near the end. Um, We're going to be talking about some sensitive stuff this morning, so I would appreciate it uh, if I could get some prayer support in the room. So I have uh, five people who'd be willing to pray for all of us as we walk through this. Thank you. Over there, and over there, and in the back there, and right here, and right here. This group over here is not for me at all. Thank you, one right there. (laughs) (laughs) The right side of the house is always tough. Uh, (laughs) um, Why don't we pray before we go further? Holy God, we recognize uh, you are good. We are grateful for your goodness. We want to believe even more deeply that you are good. Uh, Lord, there, when we we talk about things that are hard, uh, our, our fears begin to hijack our brains sometimes. I pray, holy God, that you in your perfect love would cast all fear out of this this room because we don't have to be afraid of you and your love, your ways, your goodness, and your word. So holy God, fill us, guide us, give us your eyes to see your truth. I pray I won't get in your way this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, today we continue a journey we started last week. I'm feeling a little cramped here, so I'm going to move these stools back. Um, the, the topic we began last week was, what does it mean to be the body of Christ in uh, relationship to our LGBTQ plus family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers? And to answer that question, last week we started with Jesus. And please know, um, if you did not hear last week, please go listen to it online because you've really kind of come into the second part of a, of a two-parter here. Um, last week, we started with this uh, fundamental text, John 1.14. Let's read it together. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. His Son is the exact representation of his being. The Son is the manifestation of God's holiness, the manifestation of his glory. How did the Father send the Son? The Father sent the Son full of grace and full of truth. Last week, what we talked about is grace. What does it mean uh, to be people of radical grace when it comes to our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, queer and questioning friends. Uh, Today, what we're going to do is we're going to do three things. We're going to focus on truth, and we're going to look at the authority of Jesus, the authority of his word, and we're going to hear from one of our own friends and family members. So we're going to start here, truth. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ is king. That word Christ, Christos, the Greek word Christos, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, 
But Messiah and Christos can't be separated from king because what ancient Israel was waiting for was a ruler who would come and rule and reign over the kingdom of God. When Jesus begins his ministry, he says, uh, turn from your sins, believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is that king. He's the king of all kings. That being the case, three stories. This guy comes up to Jesus and he says, um, teacher, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my dead father. And what does Jesus say? He says, uh, no, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Oh, come on, Jesus. Wait a second. Time out. I mean, this seems to be a, 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 a request that is not out of bounds. The guy simply wants to go bury his dead father. He loves his father. Now, I don't know the guy's heart. You don't know the guy's heart, but Jesus knows the guy's heart. And to the best of my ability, what I can discern here is that Jesus knew that this person's love of family, maybe even love of father, was ruling and reigning in some way in his life. And Jesus won't share the throne with anyone. Second story. Guy comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus says, "Uh, I'll tell you what, you need to obey the commandments. Why would you obey the commandments? First of all, you'd obey the commandments because God is good, (laughs) right? Those are his commands, so they're good commands. Uh, And the guy says, well, I do all that stuff. And so Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. The man walks away sad because the text says he was a, a very rich man. Now, what in the world was going on here? Why was, uh, why was Jesus so harsh on this person? I mean, is money in itself wrong? You all have some money somewhere, whether it's a penny or thousands of dollars. Is your money bad? No, it's not. Biblically speaking, your, your money is, is simply a tool that God has given you to steward. Now, your money can, uh, can begin to have, though, an authority in your life. Your money can begin to rule and reign in your life. And Jesus won't share the throne with anyone. Third story. On their way to Jerusalem, the guys who left everything to actually follow Jesus were following Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell them about what's going to happen to them once they get to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, okay, so here's what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be tried, and I am going to uh, be executed, and on the third day I'll rise from the dead. What does Peter, who's a faithful follower... What does he say to Jesus? He says, uh, uh, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. What's Jesus' response? Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. What did Peter do that was so wrong? Well, I think we could say this safely. He wanted his agenda to be Jesus' agenda. He wanted his 
his feelings about the situation, about the, the best way to handle this situation, to have authority, to share the throne with Jesus. And Jesus won't share the throne with anyone. Peter was seeing things from an effective point of view. This is not going to be an effective way to solve this problem, Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus does stuff. Jesus does what is faithful to his Father. Question for you, before we get any deeper, who's on the throne of your life? Who's on the throne? Now, there are all kinds of things in our lives that shouldn't have the ability to rule and reign over us. Take, for example, a crack addiction. My guess is, uh, my hope is, none of you have a crack addiction in this room. But if you are an addict, what you in essence want to do in your being because of what that, that substance has done to you is you want that substance to rule and reign in your life alongside Jesus. You might love God. You might love Jesus. You want Jesus to be on the throne of your life. But Jesus, would you please let my addiction share the throne with you? No, that, of course, is not going to be what's going to work. Jesus won't show, share the throne with something bad like a crack addiction. But what about something good? What if, Jesus, what if you have something in your life that is, seems relatively good? Jesus, uh, my kids, they, um, they have some authority in my life. I really want to please them. I want to do what's right for my kids. Uh, can they be on the throne with you? Now hear me, Jesus loves kids. Don't, don't take me wrong here. But your kids, your family member, doesn't get to rule and reign in your life. Only Jesus rules and reigns. Or it could be something like, uh, like your politics, you know? Uh, Jesus, you know, I really love my politics. Would you, would you wear an Obama shirt while you're on the throne? Would you wear a Make America Great Again shirt while you're on the throne? Just for me. No. Jesus won't share the throne with anyone. How about our sexuality? Jesus, um, I have desires that are, uh, I think have some authority in my life. And uh, I'd like to put them on the throne with you so my desires and your lordship can both rule in my, and reign in my life. Is that okay? No. Jesus won't share the throne with anyone. In the kingdom of God, the king belongs on the throne. Why? Because he's a good king. And he knows what be- what's best. Truth. Love for Jesus cannot be separated from obedience to Jesus. Now, if you just parachute dropped into Faith Covenant Church and you're hearing this for the first time, you might be thinking, oh my goodness, I knew it. It's just another church with rules and regulations, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 no. Hang with me. Love cannot be separated from obedience. And we all know this instinctively, but we don't process it up here very well. Love cannot be separated from obedience. Take, for example, a wedding. A man and a wife, a bride and a groom, at the wedding, they share marriage vows. I'm going to vow that I'm going to be obedient to this relationship. And you expect the other to also, out of love, be obedient to the relationship. This is the way loving relationships work. 
If you have a loving relationship and someone is not being obedient to the relationship and they continue on that trajectory, I tr- trust me, that relationship will be destroyed. It cannot sustain. If I'm in a loving relationship with you, just a friendship, and every fifth day I lie to you, well, that relationship will not continue over time. I promise you. Because why? You want me to be obedient to the relationship. You want to build a relationship of trust. We all want to have relationships that are filled with grace and filled with truth, right? Jesus comes full of grace and truth. We need to come full of grace and truth. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, hear me. Our obedience does not make us right with God. We talked about this last week. Um, God's kindness leads us to repentance, not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. However, our obedience is part of our expression of love and faithfulness to our loving King. And obedience to the Word of God is part of living under His kingship. How do we know what Jesus commands? What is He talking about in His commandments? Well, we have His teaching in the Gospels. But guess what? His teaching in the Gospels, uh, what we learned there is that Jesus viewed the law and the prophets. Uh, what his, his Bible was our Old Testament, essentially. He viewed all that as authoritative. So we have all of that, and we have his teaching, and then we have him sending apostles filled with his Holy Spirit to go make disciples and to teach as well. So he viewed their teaching as authoritative. And the church has, for 2,000 plus years, viewed that canon of Scripture as authoritative. So we would say that Jesus valued God's word as true. If we're going to love Jesus by being obedient to Jesus, then we should recognize that his words... God's word is truth, and we're to come full of God's grace and truth. And because our topic is specific to our relationship to our lesbian, gay, bisexual friends and family members, and I I put transgender out of there because we're specifically talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual today, um, we're going to look at what God's word actually says. And we're going to look at what God's word actually says because my guess, in it, my guess is everyone here has an opinion about the topic, but a lot of us have never read what the word actually says and or a lot of us have not read it in a while. Okay, So we're all going to encounter it together. And if you think that's a little harsh, guess what? If, if I was going to go to a mosque and say, hey, what does your uh, particular mosque believe about X, Y, or Z? They would show me the Quran and what it says. <laughs> if I was to go to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, they would do the same thing. Well, here's what our text says. We have a sacred text. What does it say? We're going to look at it right now. So hang on tight. Grab a Bible. Grab your phone. Um, and we are going to look. Starting uh, in Leviticus. Uh, Two verses, Leviticus 18.22 and uh, chapter 20, verse 13, essentially say the same thing. As you're turning there, I will hold on just one second. I see you. All right, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. The text says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. Now, What we have, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is God's law. And um, God's law was essentially given for the creation of God's nation of Israel, his holy nation. If you're going to create a nation, what are you going to need to do? 
you're going to need to create laws and systems that help bind the nation together. And those laws for ancient Israel uh, had three uh, essential things. They had ceremonial laws, you know, laws for the temple. They had civil laws, laws just to do daily life. And they had moral laws. Now, some people would say that the two Levitical places where uh, this, this command comes uh, was only for the nation of Israel, and so it doesn't apply to the church today at all. I'll say a couple things. One, if this was the only place in the Scriptures where this is talked about, then maybe we would be having a different conversation. But this isn't the only place. And so we have to, when you're, when you're dealing with uh, what did the Scriptures say, you have to deal with what the breadth of the Scriptures say. So let's continue. The second um, text I want to look at, oh, before I go further, note this. The texts we're going to read are specific to same-gender sex but silent regarding, regarding same-gender attraction. Uh, so most theolog- theologians, when speaking on this topic, speak of the physical action rather than uh, just attraction as sin. All right, so now we're in uh, Genesis 19, which is actually before the Leviticus passage. Genesis 19 is the, the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll summarize it for you, to, for, I'll summarize it for you quickly. In this story, two angels that uh, come in human form come to visit Abraham's nephew Lot in the city of Sodom. A mob of men from the town come to Lot and say, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Lot says no. He offers his two virgin daughters instead, which is highly problematic as well. But that's a different sermon. The mob gets unruly and tries to take the people, the men, by force, but God saves them and destroys the city. Now, a couple things. Some have rightly argued, I would say, that the primary sin here is not same-gender sex, but rape. The book of Ezekiel calls out Sodom's sin and says it's a, it's a deeper thing than we first ex- expected. Ezekiel says, now this was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So, while not negating uh, the, uh, the sin of raping two visitors, Ezekiel points out that Sodom's problem was clearly uh, not only sexual. This was a corrupt, corrupt city. So can we toss out this story? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, just to, to, be, uh, to give honor where honor is due here, you have uh, this story happening here. In, after the ministry of, and life of Jesus, Jude in the New Testament speaks about this story. Here's what Jude writes. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Jude doesn't specify whether the sexual immorality and perversion is rape or same-gender sex or wanting to have sex with angels. So most scholars, you know what they do with Genesis 19 and when it comes to questions regarding LGBTQ plus people, they take the Sodom and Gomorrah story and they put it on a shelf and they say, eh, not really helpful. Okay? And so if, if you're trying to um, discuss these issues with someone who doesn't know the scriptures well, you probably shouldn't really use Genesis 19 because it's just not clear 
in my mind, and other scholars. Uh, Jump a couple thousand years from Leviticus to after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to 1 Corinthians uh, and 1 Timothy. We're going to look at two passages, both written by the Apostle Paul. I'll read them one at a time. You can follow along. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, see, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right? It's quite a list. Next passage, 1 Timothy 1. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the doctrine. Whew. Now, interesting thing happens here in both of those passages from Paul. Paul uses a Greek word which is arsenokoitai. I'm probably not saying it right, but arsenokoitai, which essentially means male bed. Interestingly, that word is not used anywhere else in the Bible, is not used anywhere else in antiquity. And so scholars are like, what in the world is going on? Follow me here. Leviticus, the two passages I referenced earlier, is written, was written in Hebrew first, okay? The Apostle Paul, uh, living in a Hellenized world, meaning speaking to Greek speakers where Greek uh, culture had the most influence, the Greek, that Greek culture translated Torah, translated the Torah into Greek, from Hebrew to Greek. Those two passages, the verses that I mentioned earlier, use two uh, Greek words. Arson, which means, means male, and koitai, which means bed. And it's, they reside right next to each other in uh, the Greek translation of Leviticus back from Paul's day. And so what scholars think Paul did was he took those two Greek words from those two verses put them together in what is called a neologism, a new word, put them together knowing that those reading uh, the Greek translation of Leviticus and his letter would have context, knowing, saying essentially, I am upholding here what was prohibited here. That's why that word comes together. Last passage, Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, we're going to start with verse 20, not verse 18. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What's Paul saying? Right in the beginning of, of his argument in Romans, he is essentially saying God has created and part of what and, and all of what God created is part of God's revelation, is part of God revealing his goodness. So Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 1. God has created and God, what God created was good. Heaven, earth, light, dark, male, female, all good, very good, all right? Paul continues on and he, he says, uh, verse 21, for although they knew God... Who's, who's the they there? Well, in, in 
here he's, he's essentially talking about all those outside of, all those who don't put their faith in God. They, for although they knew God because he'd revealed himself through his created order, they neither glorified him nor gave God, nor, uh, him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What's he saying is, these, all those people, they knew about God because God had revealed himself through the created order, but they didn't honor God as God. What they did instead was they made idols. And in making those idols, they began to worship that which is not God. In essence, and my my hero N.T. Wright says, when the society as a whole worships that which is not the true God, then its image-bearingness begins to deconstruct. When you begin to worship that which is not God, your ability to bear the image of God begins to deconstruct. It begins to fall apart. So what happens? When we worship other gods and society is breaking apart, well, God says, okay, if you're going to reject me, I'm going to let you go your own way and see how that works for you. And in the process, verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what Paul's doing is he's beginning to make an argument. And he says, God has shown through the created order his revelation. People rejected that, so God said, okay. If you want to go your own way, go your own way. And what resulted is a brokenness, is a deconstructing of that which is good. What resulted was sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality was heterosexual immorality. It was also same-sex sexuality, which began to be broken and deconstructed. It's just bad news after bad news when you're in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And then you get to Romans 3. Hang with me here. There is no one righteous, he writes. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Hold. Don't go to the next slide yet. Paul is saying, everyone out there doesn't get it. But just so everyone in here in the kingdom of God, you're not getting it either. There's no one good. We're all, we're all swinging. It's all a swing and a miss for us. What we need is we need to be saved. Now, next slide, famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, which brings us back to where we started, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King, the Deliverer, the Anointed One who came to save, and he came out of God's love, and he came full of grace, but he also came with truth. Jesus came to make us right because we're all getting it wrong. We're all part of the deconstruction problem. We've fallen short of God's glorious standard. Now, let me just summarize where we've been because you all look like you need lunch. (laughs) All right, hang with me here. We started with the authority of King Jesus. We said that part of being obedient to God is loving him, and part of loving him is being obedient, and we've talked about his word is where we find 
what that obedience looks like. His word is true, it's good, it's his command. We've looked at all those texts, and the reason we looked at them was because I wanted us all to encounter, okay, what does God say regarding these things? Now, question. What would it look like for someone who is gay to seek to honor Christ as king, to uh, love Jesus and seek to be obedient to Jesus by upholding what his word says. Now we're going to hear from one of our own family members. Everyone give a big round of applause for Kevin. Dear Faith Covenant Church, I first joined this congregation in November 2013. I had just been on a mission trip to Honduras with Agua Viva, and it was an experience that changed my life. While I was there, I began the process of coming out as gay, of admitting that while I had never, and to this day, have never pursued a romantic or sexual relationship with a man, I was indeed attracted to men. We were debriefing from our trip on a porch in Tegucigalpa, and for a variety of reasons, I finally broke down and came out to my dad, my brother, the rest of the mission trip team. I felt like a huge pile of chains just fell off me. I came out to the rest of my family when I came home from the trip, and then, a couple of months later, to the whole world in a blog that I put on Facebook, because I'm a millennial and that's what we do. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. When I was first coming out as gay, I didn't call it gay. I called it same-sex attracted. Whatever it was called, it didn't really matter, because I believed that God's design for a man and woman to be united in marriage, and that was the appropriate context for sex. As such, I called myself straight, because I believed that someday God would take this attraction to men away from me, and that I would marry a woman and have a healthy sex life. The belief that God would give me the attraction needed for marriage to a woman was a glimmer of hope. But when my same-sex attraction didn't leave me, I bore it as my own guilt. To me, it meant that I wasn't praying enough, that I wasn't reading my Bible enough, that I wasn't close enough to God. When I had seen people of faith come out as gay, I saw two things. Some abandoned their faith, and others embraced an interpretation of Scripture that embraced and sanctioned monogamous same-sex relationships and marriages. I knew that I could do neither of those things. I couldn't leave the faith. It was too deeply ingrained in me. And I also couldn't buy into the arguments advocating for scriptural sanctioning of same-sex relationships. I didn't see a third option. So I stayed silent, and I suffered. As the years went on, my belief in God's design of marriage and sex being intended for man-woman relationships only grew stronger. It was no longer the product of the environment I grew up in. It was my own belief, my own conclusions from my own theological studies. So over time, I came out quietly to one friend, and then a few years later to another friend. It lessened the burden somewhat, but I still felt an urgency from the Holy Spirit to share more openly. Before and during my time in Honduras in 2013, the words of 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10, kept poking at me, where Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My weakness was an opportunity for God to show his power, for God to work in me and through me. But in keeping my secret, I was denying God that opportunity to work in me and through me. In keeping that secret, that secret was keeping me. Often in the church, we practice the laying on of hands, which is a symbol of blessing, love, healing, and peace. We did this earlier with Shannon today when we prayed. Now, I have experienced that in the church in so many ways, even with those who know that I'm gay. But I've also experienced the laying on of chains. It's often unintended, and it's not often stemming from any real malice, but it's been a laying on of chains nonetheless. I want to challenge you to think about this today. Have I laid chains or laid hands on LGBTQ people? I beg you to ask yourself that and to ask God that. My life has changed a lot since coming out. In November 2014, the first year after coming out, I went to Honduras again on another mission trip. And when I got to that porch in Tegucigalpa, I could see that same pile of chains clearly. They were rusting and unused. Seeing those and shedding those chains set me free, and I am now finally growing and healing. So I no longer fear using the term gay to describe myself because it does describe something about me in the same way that saying that I'm 5'5 five five and 138 pounds describes something about me, or being right-handed describes something about me. I no longer feel the need to pray to be changed. God can make that change in me, but I recognize now that being made straight was an idol that I had in my life and that God can use me as I am today. I now feel blessed to be gay and celibate. It has helped me see the joys of singleness, and I got to preach on that last month. I realize now that my sexuality is no more or less broken than anyone else's. I am no more or less broken than anyone else. The biggest challenge I face now is navigating the awkward place that I live in. I'm at odds with a secular culture and more liberal wing of Christianity that would affirm and embrace same-sex relationships. But at the same time, I agree with them that the church is not all innocent in how it has treated LGBTQ people. But I'm also in agreement with the more conservative wing of Christianity that would affirm a traditional view of marriage and sexuality. But I'm challenged by how to best help the church understand its errors in that area. And I realize today my words may not convince anyone of anything. The only hope, the only thing I hope is that we can all agree on, let me rephrase, the only thing I hope we can all agree on is that Jesus came to break the chains upon us, whatever those chains are. Jesus is a chain breaker. He broke my chains and he can break your chains as well. Jesus did not come to lay chains upon us. Jesus came to lay hands upon us. Let us do the same. Let us lay hands and not chains. In Christ, Kevin Rognes.
uh, I had learned Kevin's story years ago, and when he knew what I was going to be preaching on uh, today, he uh, said, would you like me to share my story? And I said, uh, yes, I'd love you to. And so I'm very grateful, Kevin. Excellent work. And um, I just want to close with these thoughts. Uh, first of all, as Kevin said, there's not a broken uh, there's, there's not a person in this room whose sexuality is not somehow broken in some way. The good news is the king has come, and his ways are full of grace and truth, and his word is a light for everyone's path. Two final challenges. The first challenge is this. For all of you who take a more tri- traditional view, like Kevin said he does, and like I do, and like our denomination does, um, question, how are you going to participate with God in sharing his good news with LGBTQ plus people? Is your strategy to run and hide? Or is your strategy to somehow try to manage their sin? Or is your strategy to go love and share the amazing grace and truth of Jesus? Only that last part is biblical. The first two parts are not. The second challenge is then for all of you who take a more liberal stance on this view, have you really done the theological legwork sufficient to reject what the Scriptures say on this topic? I know some people who have done that legwork, and I can respect the fact that they've done the legwork, and they do so with an intellectual integrity at least, even though we disagree. I know a lot of people simply are reacting to an emotional response and to culture's response and somehow want to be helpful to the people they love. I get that, but we also have to remember that God's word is good and the king is good and we can trust him. And his ways do not look like the world's ways. And so it's important we look to see what does his word actually say. All right, we're going to end there. We're going to do Q&A. If you have a question, you can send a question to that number, or you can write it down. Pastor Shar, uh, Kevin, and Ryan are going to be helping me. Uh, just an FYI, Kevin is a Master of Divinity student at Bethel. Uh, so he's up here not only because he's sharing, but because he has spent a lot of time studying these things. And if you're new to Faith Covenant Church, we do this often, and I always reserve the right to be wrong. Uh, let's start here, then I'll hand this to Ryan. Kevin, what are ways people within the church have unintentionally laid chains on you? Good question. Um, sometimes, I mean, and again, it's not necessarily stemming out of malice. Um, one thing, and that was a question that came up in the last uh, service, is there, or something that came up in the last question system, is there's a lot of focus on sexuality as a sin in the church. And so we often hear the message in the church of, you know, homosexuality is a huge sin, and we have the signs of the parade, and blah, blah, blah. That's a chain, because there's a huge emphasis on it when the Bible also talks about a lot of other sins more frequently than that. Um, Other sins, um, you maybe hear jokes, like demeaning gay people, and nobody stands up and says, hey, maybe don't tell that joke. That's a chain. Um, It's sometimes just offhanded little comments. Um, I once heard someone say, after they saw a lesbian kiss on TV, they said, oh, those one-wayers. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but it clearly was not a very kind comment. And so whenever I heard those things, I just said, yep, I got to keep that secret. I'll add to that. Um, If if you're going to shout at the TV when you see um, uh, something like that, um, 
Then you also need to shout at the TV when the heterosexual couple is having an affair on TV, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So or when they're uh, being greedy on TV, right? <laughs> yeah, or, or you know the, the gluttony on TV. So if, if you're going to shout at the TV, we'll do it equitably, <laughs> <laughs> which just means a lot of shouting at the TV. So <laughs> save your voice, just don't. <laughs> Well, well and, and, and that actually leads to, to something we said earlier in the, la- in the last service, is so often, I think, um, the reason the church has highlighted these particular sins is because uh, the majority doesn't want to take a look at themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to project upon someone else, you know, point the finger, you know, try to get the, the log out of the other person's eye when you know you have a speck in your own eye. Yeah? Okay. Uh, This next one, it says, uh, neither the Ten Commandments nor Jesus say anything directly about homosexuality. Doesn't that open the door to seeing Leviticus as a cultural feature of ancient Israel, not something essential to Christianity? (laughs) (laughs) This one also came up very similar in the first service. Um, I would say the narrative of Scripture starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, and that's God's word, and we can easily pick out one verse at a time here and there to argue whatever point we want to argue to form, whatever opinion we want to pin, want to form. Um, but really, looking at the entire context of Scripture and doing that legwork that Brad mentioned earlier is critical to forming an opinion on anything. So, um, yeah, there's more than just those two things. I would, I would also add that um, when Jesus does talk about marriage and relationships, he does affirm a standard of a man and a woman. So even though he doesn't specifically address homosexuality, he does uphold a norm of male-female marital relationships. And Jesus also doesn't address, like, rape or pedophilia, a lot of those things. Those are still very wrong, even though Jesus doesn't directly address it. But it's still part of the overarching narrative that Shar mentioned, and Jesus upholds that narrative. Okay. Um, so then kind of sticking with that, there's a couple questions um, kind of centering around this. So, um, so one of the arguments that people make against the church is that in different passages in Leviticus, like it talks about, um, you know, like not eating pork shellfish. or not eating, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, not eating shellfish, you know. Mm-hmm. So where are the people out protesting you know, outside of Red Lobster, you know? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, what do we, so what do we do with that, you know, when, when people say that we're picking and choosing what verses to uphold and which ones not to? Um, the ceremonial laws in, in Torah, in the first five books, um, are, are, we would say we're all fulfilled in Christ, okay? So it makes sense that, for example, we're not killing goats on a Sunday morning, etc. Um, that, was, that was funny. <laughs> um, there, the, other, so the other way to look at this, too, then, just regarding moral laws, is this, it's interesting that, that Paul, the apostle, um, takes that particular Levitical law and then highlights it again in, in his teaching, okay? Um, I would also say, if you look at Leviticus 18 and 20, and you look at the long list that is prohibited, uh, they're all things everyone agrees on for the most part here. There's one, there's one uh, prohibition which 
it's mysterious, and I'm not going to go there right now. But for the most part, the, command, the prohibitions in Leviticus 18 and 20, you know, uh, don't have sex with your mother, don't have sex with your daughter, don't have sex with your mother's uh, daughter, you know, don't have sex with your cousin, you know, all these things. Um, you know, we, we agree with those fine. Um, it, it's just interesting that even if you take... Those chapters, we want to pull that one out and say, well, now it's okay. And even in, when you take first, the First Corinthians passage and the First Timothy passage and say, and this is okay too, even though the First Corinthians and the First Timothy passage have a bunch of things that we all agree is not right. So I don't know how you make the argument that suddenly pulling these two out of these lists that everyone agrees on is wrong is suddenly now right. Okay. The shellfish thing, um, I would just add one more thing. <laughs> um, so, so, some of that, we, I think there's a context that we don't understand. The other thing is I think it's important to recognize that um, God was doing something specific for that particular people in making a holy people. And there are certain guidelines to guide that. We don't fully understand all of it. I'm sure some wonderful Jewish scholar would be able to help me understand some of them. Uh, but it, the, the prohibi- prohibition against shellfish doesn't come again in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, this next one asks, so how can we mend relationships with our LGBTQ uh, friends and family members that a church or Christians have purposely broken? I'll start, and then anyone else can pipe in. I think you start by saying, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say, um, I'm sorry for any... This, this is in you know, the 12 steps. This is the making amends step. <laughs> um, if, if I've done anything to break down this relationship, either on purpose or maybe uh, not on purpose, I am really, really sorry. And, um, and I'm sorry for all of my friends who've done that as well. And uh, I, th- I think kind of taking responsibility for your own uh, part in, in, the, in the breakdown is okay. I don't know. I would agree with that. And, I mean, it's maybe not even something where you may not know for sure whether you have or haven't hurt someone's feelings or even with your kids or your friends. But maybe you just say, hey, I said this, and even if this isn't your experience, it wasn't okay that I said this. I shouldn't have been mm-hmm. saying things that are demeaning or degrading. The other thing I would say is, um, for I, I talked to a woman after the first service who um, had experienced some guilt over some things that she had done or said, and I said, you know, if you've tried to say sorry for what you can do, that's a great starting point. Then you also have to forgive yourself, and you also have to accept that no matter what you do or say, you may not convince that person that you love of your interpretation of Scripture. And you have to accept that and not neglect them or run away from them and say, even though you proclaim the truth once, you've proclaimed the truth. You don't need to keep doing it. At that point, you just start loving um, and just treat them as you would treat them anyone else. Hang out with them, spend time with them, love them, um, love their partner, their person that they've brought into their life. Um, even if you don't think that that's an appropriate relationship to have, there's still a person in your life and in the lives of your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Treat them as you would anybody else, because, I mean, sometimes you find other people in your life that are dating someone that's just really not a right fit for them, even if it's a same-sex or a heterosexual relationship. You still love that person, too, even though you think they're not a good match. Same thing applies. Just 
Love people. Any other thoughts? It all comes back to Jesus. I think the church has hurt. People in the church have hurt a lot of people over a lot of different topics through the, through the years. And if you get hung up on a, on a person who's hurt you, point them to Jesus. <laughs> point them to the God's word. Point them, point them in a direction of growing closer to Christ. And I just, as you're saying that, I thought of something. Um, it does, it's not mentioned in the Bible, but I'm certain that Jesus encountered at some point a person who was gay. And then probably never said it. It was never probably spoken of, but Jesus knew that that was something that it was a part of their lives, and I'm sure he would not have treated them any different than he treated anybody else. It's mm. good. Yeah, I, maybe I'll just wrap up this, this portion here with this. Start, start with Jesus mm. uh, and end with Jesus, okay? And it's okay to say uh, to a, um, a friend or family member, neighbor, if they come to you and say, what does your church believe or what do you believe about this? Uh, it's okay to, you can't, you can be honest, mm-hmm. um, but you can say, hey, let's not, can we not let that divide us? That's just, I'm, I want you to be who you are. You, I'm going to try to be who I am. And I love Jesus. I think he really loves you. And um, I would love to walk with you in, in coming to know him more. And so make the focus Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting, even if, when you think about in the 12 steps, what do they start with? They start with, um, I, I have a problem and I need help. And my higher power, we would say Jesus, um, is the only one who can help. And so as a church, we have to reside in the fact that only Jesus is the one who can help any of us. And so that is the beginning point and that is the ending point. Let's stop there. You all stay up here. Let, I'm going to pray and, um, and then we'll be done. Holy God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your living word. We pray, God, uh, I pray now for all of us who have some fear maybe uh, driving the bus uh, in, in the way we're thinking and feeling right now. I pray, Lord, that your perfect love and your grace and your truth would cast out fear. Even though many of us are going to have disagreements about where to reside on these issues, I pray, holy God, that we would uh, find our unity in you and live with grace with each other, knowing that we're all seeking to live in truth as well. So God, help us walk well together. In your name we pray. Amen.